0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, HP and Lenovo are busted injecting malware via the firmware even after you format your drive. Ubiquity Networks has been socially engineered out of $46 million, and the question has to be asked, is security research about to be prohibited? We'll debate. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Everyone and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode two hundred and twenty-eight of Jupiter Broadcasting's Weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We stream this episode live on August thirteenth, two thousand and fifteen. Oh, this episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors: DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year show goes on. But our live stream. Ooh, that's the secret sauce. It's powered by that incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, Alan. I'm glad to say the Skype connection's holding. We're doing a double snap today. We're mm-hmm. pre-recording a little bit, so we're doing this one live on the 13th. And uh, I probably shouldn't have said anything. I'm going to knock on wood. i got a wood <laughs> desk right here. And uh, so far, it's been holding up good, which is not not too bad, considering we have a uh, we have a steady video connection back and forth this entire time. And mm-hmm. Alan, today's first story, it is blowing up today as we record. So yeah. I, don't know how it's, I don't know where it's going to be at the time this goes live, but this is a fascinating story about how getting malware on, on a chip basically could make wiping a drive completely irrelevant. And uh, it turns out it's happening at a pretty large scale by vendors I thought we kind of trusted. What's happening? Well, what's, what's worse
1: here is not so much that you know Lenovo and HP and so on are doing it, is that Microsoft built it in as a feature of Windows 8 and above.
0: Hmm.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah, that is awful. Uh, so a user on the Ars Technica forums, and uh, I don't have the link, but apparently someone on Hacker News discovered it around the same time, uh, wiped his computer and did a reinstall of Windows 8.1 or something, one of the versions of Windows anyway, uh, with his uh, no Ethernet connection, Wi-Fi disabled, just install off the DVD. Uh, and after he booted the first time, he already had the uh, the uh, Lenovo crapware that comes bundled mm-hmm. on the laptop. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "How the hell? I this is not a Lenovo Windows CD. This is a v- vanilla Windows CD." Yeah, that would make me wonder too. I I put in a brand new SSD, and I uh, I installed off the DVD and the software's there already. What the hell? Uh, so he, he's like, how'd that happen? I right, The disk was empty. <laughs> well, it turns out Microsoft has a solution for that. Hmm. It is called the Windows Platform Binary Table, huh. uh, which is basically a way from, I think it's from EFI or maybe, but anyway, uh, a way that during the boot up process, the BIOS can instruct Windows, hey, look over here for some executable code and uh, run it. And Windows will run that as the system user, uh, which is higher privileges than even administrator. Mm. Uh, and then that code can do whatever it wants, including you know putting files on your hard drive or whatever. Because it runs after Windows is started up and the file systems are mounted, it can even access disks that are encrypted with BitLocker because they've already been attached and, right. and had the encryption key entered.
0: Right, yeah. Uh, so when you look
1: up uh, before now... Uh, Microsoft's uh, window platform binary table, The one there was one result on Microsoft's uh, website which was download this docx file that kind of explains a little bit about it. And it was definitely targeted towards vendors like Lenovo and, and so forth.
0: So it's a nice feature they don't talk much about to the general public.
1: No, there's like one dot, uh, docx on the entire internet about right. it and mm-hmm. that
0: was it. Um
1: mm-hmm. uh, but they they say the Microsoft Windows Platform Binary Table uh, feature allows PC manufacturers and corporate IT to inject drivers, programs, and other files into the Windows operating system from the motherboard firmware. Hmm. Uh, the WPBT uh, is stored in the firmware and tells Windows where in memory can find an executable called a platform binary to run. Said executable can take care of the job of installing files before the operating system actually starts. Hmm. So... From a corporate IT perspective, I can definitely see how this is useful for. Sure. Instead of having to do uh, like a sysprep type image, and when it first boots up, it runs some tool. You could burn it into the the firmware, but that doesn't seem like something you would do that often. Honestly, it definitely seems like it'd be easier to update the software you're burning in if it was part of a sysprep image as opposed to being a firmware update. Yeah, but anyway. During operating system initializations, Windows will read the uh, platform binary table to obtain the physical memory location of the platform binary. The binary is required to be a native user mode application that is executed in the Windows Session Manager during system uh, initialization. So this is before anybody's actually logged in. Windows will write the flat image to disk, uh, and the Session Manager will then launch the process. So the Lenovo service engine... uh, did some tricky things, and this is uh, what the user on um, the forums figured out. So, what uh, when the Lenovo code in the firmware does is, it makes sure that the uh, Windows slash System thirty two slash Auto CHK, which is the automatic version of uh, Check Disk that runs at boot up mm-hmm. on Windows, mm-hmm. is kind of like FSCK in preen mode, where yeah. it just checks if you were shut down properly, and if not, runs the FSCK. Uh, well, if it was not the Lenovo version of that file. Uh, then, but instead, was Microsoft's official one or something? The Lenovo uh, bi- platform binary would rename it and then install its own file there. Really? And then when its file was run during setup, it would go and install Lenovo Update.exe and Lenovo Check.exe and so on. That would go and get driver updates from Lenovo, and and they have this hardware integrity check they want you to run every like sixty days, and it pops up and annoys you if you're running mm. Windows. It's weird, anyway. Uh, and then, yeah, it'll copy those executables into a, uh, the directory during boot up. So if you uninstall and delete the programs, the LSE firmware will just bring them back the next time you reboot. So the Microsoft documentation tries to make it clear. It says, the primary purpose of the window, of the platform binary table is to allow critical software to persist even when the operating system has changed or been reinstalled in a clean configuration. Because this feature provides the ability uh, to persistently execute system software in the context of Windows, it becomes critical that the Windows Platform Binary Table-based solutions are as secure as possible and do not expose Windows users to exploitable conditions. It's, which is kind of funny because the entire Platform Binary Table feature exposes Windows users to exploitable conditions.
0: hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. This seems really uh, dangerous for, uh, like, right yeah. for exploits. It's just like,
1: at least the binary should have had to have been signed by Microsoft or something. Or but approved, yeah.
0: maybe, or something. I, yeah. I, yeah.
1: I, I can understand it makes sense to be able to have some bit of stuff that will survive reformatting the disk, especially when, you know, things like Lenovo don't give you a recovery CD or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in general, the parts I want to survive are not the crapware. Um,. <laughs> uh, and you know, specifically the point where Microsoft's like, the software you stick in here has to be as secure as possible even though we don't check. Um, turns out not the case. The software that's currently in there from Lenovo was found uh, to have a buffer overflow vulnerability that could be used to get administrator-level oh, privileges on the machine. Geez, you're kidding me. Uh, that bug's been reported, but the details are not available because it hasn't been fixed yet. But after Lenovo learned of the bug in April, it dawned on the company that the current uh, Lenovo service engine... Was falling uh, foul of Microsoft's security guidelines for using the uh, powerful, they say, but horrible security implications uh, platform binary table feature. Uh, two months later, in June, it pulled the whole thing. So my, uh, Lenovo doesn't do this anymore since June. Of course, mm. that doesn't help a laptop you bought over the last, since Windows 8 came out, basically. Uh, but luckily, if you're not running Windows 8, if you have Windows 7 or or running Linux or whatever, your computer's not affected, because uh, that raised the immediate question. Because when they found it on at Ars Technica, they thought that it was just code that ran in the BIOS, and then uh, you know found out oh your disk is NTFS. I'm just going to write this file here. Uh, but it actually happens later once Windows has started and is using the Windows NTFS driver uh, because there was a concern. is like, does that mean that on Linux it might just be like randomly trying to overwrite files in my not NTFS file system? Huh. But it turns out that's not the case.
0: Yeah. But, uh, when uh, I, I can only imagine discovering this as you reset up the Well, version. and
1: the other problem is that the update checker, uh, so it calls out to Lenovo over not HTTPS for like a JSON file telling it what updates are there are or whatever. So You could do a man-in-the-middle attack on that because it's not HTTPS. So if you were, say, booting up your Lenovo at a Starbucks, and I was sitting there with my Lenovo that doesn't run Windows, uh, I could trick your Lenovo into thinking that my laptop is Lenovo.com and downloading a driver update or security update from me. Sure. And the one that I give you won't be a nice driver update for some component of your laptop.
0: You know, it's, it's uh, I think it has a little bit of extra uh, stink behind this story in the uh, wake of, what was their, uh, not Superfish, was it called Superfish? Was that the, yep. uh, yeah. That, I mean, where they're in, it's just it's one thing after another with Lenovo, and the trust here is 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 really damaged, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the fact that they had actually pulled this before anybody figured out about it, I mean, you know, <laughs> I think they were really hoping nobody
0: figured it out. But, uh, I have a couple of questions of two I yep. wonder if reflashing like if you downloaded like a stock uh, BIOS yes, uh, image so, update, or maybe even uh, turning on legacy boot maybe if that would avoid this problem.
1: I don't know about legacy boot but if you follow the instructions of the main article from the register they have the instructions for removing it which is installing a firmware update that doesn't have the file so you get a new image anymore. yeah yeah. so you reflash your BIOS and it won't uh, have the bad stuff
0: anymore of course they might just bundle their oh yeah of course they've taken it out now right yeah makes sense.
1: yeah so they, they yeah they've been even laptops they've been making uh, last month were shipped without it Okay. but the you know laptops they built last month probably aren't in stores yet Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, and so on or the old one but are still yeah in there's uh, the official firmware had the problem and new official firmware has it removed so uh the removal tool and everything is official from Lenovo on their website. Okay. Uh, so other interesting notes is that this was observed on desktop computers too, not just laptops. Mm. Uh, this is a feature of Windows 8, not something special Lenovo was doing. So this can happen to any computer that's running Windows 8 or above
0: that has a chip that you can be ri- that can be written to from the OS. Yeah. So like
1: which is every computer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> every modern computer.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anything that will run Windows 8, basically, (laughs) is vulnerable to this. Uh, Microsoft also notes in their little doc here, if partners intentionally or unintentionally introduce malware or unwanted software through the Windows platform binary table, Microsoft may remove such software through the use of the anti-malware software, which is like Windows Defender or whatever Mm -hmm, it's called. mm -hmm. Software that is determined to be malicious may be subject to immediate removal without notice. So if if you inject spyware from your or malware, uh, from the BIOS, uh, Microsoft might delete it with Windows Defender. They won't, you know, yell at you or ban you from making computers or, you know, blacklist your software. No, they'll, they'll just make their virus scanner delete, delete, it. delete it without even telling it. It's like, well, that's, well if it's just going to get reinstalled every time I reboot, that's not really accomplished much, has it?
0: It makes it sound like, you know, they're trying not to draw attention to this feature.
1: Yeah. And basically, it's all goodwill type thing now, right? It's like Microsoft says you shouldn't install malware, and if you do, we might delete it. So don't install malware. Mm-hmm. They, they don't really have a way to enforce it. That's, they really need signing at least or something, but they just should not have that feature. That's just
0: yeah. I'm horrible. amazed that they've introduced this in such a late stage in their operating system development and, and, and not. Well, apparently, it's been there since Windows Eight. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, by 8, they know about signing code. They know about, you know, like, drivers have to be signed. Like, they obviously are familiar with this process. You know, they didn't Mm -hmm. introduce that. Any other thoughts, Alan?
1: Uh, No, but there's uh, lots of extra links at the bottom of the article, too.
0: Let me me tell you about a vendor that gets it right. That's IX Systems. Mm -hmm. And I want you to go to slash TechSnap to support this show, but also to get their white paper on why IX Systems makes a difference. When you need to build a solution around open source and something that's mission critical, you don't want a vendor that's going to punt the blame as soon as you run into a problem. And you want somebody who can work with you with a white glove experience to really create the solution that's going to solve your problem. Go to slash TechSnap and see what I'm talking about. Then visit their main page and explore around. You know, everything. They have free NAS to true NAS. I mean, the whole range of products. And one of the things that I really think is unique about iX systems is they have staffing that nobody else can match. Exactly. They, ha- they have people you know, working on this stuff that invented this stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, not just that. It's like lots of companies will have you know, open source splattered on their web page somewhere. Uh, But with iX, you can actually go and do a little searching and actually find, oh, here's a bunch of commits to my favorite open source project that came from iX. Or, oh, my favorite open source project happens to be FreeNAS, and it's like, all of the commits come from them. Or whatever, you know, it's... uh,
0: Lots of work and people that have been in the industry for a long time go to IX. And, uh, yep. you know, the other thing that's really great about IX is they're involved with the community, too. They just put up their OSCON 2015 post up on their site, which you can go check out on their blog. And I went to OSCON a couple of weeks ago. It was a pretty great conference, and I bumped into IX while I was there. And they often go to these and then they post their uh, their wrap up yeah. from them, which is really cool. And, you exactly. uh,
1: that's the other thing. Uh, you know, lots of companies talk about community, but if you actually go to that section of the uh, IX Systems website, you'll see. Two or three posts a month of them actually out there in the community yeah. making these things happen.
0: Yeah, it's pretty neat. I got some good pictures, too. Eh, look yeah. at those beards. Uh, that's great. <laughs> There's those are <laughs> some pictures of good beards. Michael yep. Dexter made that post up on the uh, IX Systems bo- blog. So you go over to iXsystems.com slash techsnap, get that white glove experience, see why Mr. Alan Jude uses them for yes. uh, his hardware and why he uses them for or, not? or not? We could, yeah. Well, I don't have yeah. them handy on this dock, okay. but. People, we, we do have uh, them in last week's episode. Alan, the the other the, thing
1: I was going to talk about, uh, you can't see it until the picture's in the end, but you can actually see the machines being hooked up and, and going through the QA test. Uh, maybe we'll show that next week. Ooh, good tease,
0: Alan. I'd love and, that. The
1: other thing is uh, there's a, a setup sheet that I fill out. Uh, and you know one of the, the one server that's going to the data center and set up my house... I gave them all the configuration, and they set it all up for me. So it just gets shipped directly to the data center. They'll just plug in
0: the cables into the right ports, and it will just start working. That's nice. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. Go check them out. They're great. Okay, and I want to talk about the story that came from uh, Brian Krebs here about Ubiquiti's bad, bad, very expensive week. What happened?
1: Yes. Uh, So this was basically a man-in-the-email attack. Okay. Uh, so the networking firm Ubiquity Networks, which they make like uh, switches and routers yeah. and Wi-Fi stuff. Oh, uh, oh yeah. They disclosed this week that cyber thieves have recently sold $46.7 million dollars from them oh. using an increasingly common scheme in which the crooks uh, spoof uh, a communication from an executive to the victim to uh, initiate unauthorized international wire transfers. So basically somebody uh, sent an email to the finance department pretending to be the boss and saying, hey, uh, I need uh, this much money wired over to here. And they Mm -hmm. did it. (laughs) (laughs) Easy easy peasy. Yeah. You pretend to be the boss and then you trick a secretary or somebody in the finance department or whatever into approving uh, some expenses you're doing or making a transfer. Uh, In this particular instance, the attack was disclosed as part of the company's uh, quarterly filings with the SEC for their stocks. Uh, And they said, this fraud resulted in transfer of funds in aggregate of uh, $46 million held by a company subsidiary incorporated in Hong Kong to other overseas accounts held by third parties. Really? Uh, Yeah, so basically they don't go into much detail. But what we assume happens is they claim to be, you know, oh, we're we're the subsidiary in Hong Kong that actually manufactures the routers or whatever. We need to send this much money off to... Uh, some supplier to pay for parts or whatever, and they wired the money, in, and it turns out it was fake. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: uh, and then, yeah, so was, uh, as soon as the company became aware of the fraudulent activity, it initiated contact with its Hong Kong subsidiaries bank and promptly initiated legal proceedings in various foreign jurisdictions. As a result of that, they've gotten back $8.1 million of it, mm. uh, and they have some more that's currently held up. Well, the dispute is resol- uh, resolved, but then it'll... Uh, they expected to come back to them and they're still working on gaining back the rest of the uh, another 25 million or something yeah. that's out there still somewhere. a big gap Yeah, the the swindle that hit Ubiquity is a sophisticated and increasingly common one targeting uh, businesses that work with foreign suppliers or businesses that regularly perform wire transfer payments because they're the most you know if you're set up to do that all the time it's much easier to trick somebody right mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: so Ubiquity didn't disclose precisely how they got scammed But CEO fraud of this type usually begins with the thieves either doing like spear phishing uh, of an executive and then taking over their uh, inbox or emailing employees from a lookalike domain, Hmm. right? So if you're example.com, I might register example but spell with a one instead of an L so that the email address, the from address looks the same, right? Uh, And so you're like, oh, right. Or, you know, get example.co instead of .com. Right. Because that's when your eye could just totally glaze over. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I send the message from that domain and so you get an email and it looks like it's from me. It's got my typical signature because or you know, it can even be uh not detected as spam or whatever because I did it by taking over the CEO's actual inbox.
0: Which would look legit.
1: Yeah, exactly. So and and because if I have his inbox, I can read other emails he sent mm-hmm. to know how he how he does the salutation or whatever. Or and, reset passwords. Uh, right. I can also reset passwords and stuff, but also hmm. uh I can answer email back, mm-hmm. and and but mostly I can read some emails they sent before, so I can sound more like them when I'm sending the email, mm. right? Uh, the FBI has an advisory about scams like this for a little while, and you know they recommend businesses adopt two-factor or multi-step authentication for email, uh, if it's available, or you know establish other communication channels. So if somebody sends you an email asking you to wire 30 million dollars
0: somewhere maybe give him a phone call and make sure that that's right. Seems like such a big amount of money not to have some more verification.
1: Well, yeah, at least to do a phone call. But, you know, at the same time, it's like if you know that the guy's traveling to Asia to to set up a deal or something and he sends you an email asking you to transfer the money, it's like, well, with time zones, he's not going to be awake at the same time as that the office is open or whatever or, you know, phone calls cost $3 a minute in that country. Yeah, yeah. It's like that. So, yeah. But, you know... a minute doesn't quite add up to $30 million. No. Yep.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Businesses are also advised to exercise restraint when publishing information about employee activities on their website or through social media. As attackers uh, perpetrating these schemes often will try to discover information about when executives at a targeted uh, organization will be traveling or otherwise out of the office. Sure. You know, it's great to spoof, uh, pretend to be somebody when they're on an airplane and can't be reached otherwise.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: But they say, unlike traditional phishing scams, spoofed emails used in CEO fraud schemes like this are unlikely to set off spam traps because these are targeted phishing scams, not the mass email junk you normally see. Uh, the crooks behind them take the time to understand the target's organization, the relationships, activities, and interests, and travel and purchasing plans, and so on. You know, if, if I know what your type of business is, I'm going to make it sound more plausible. Whereas if I'm just sending a spam to, like, you know, 20,000 people, most of them aren't in the middle of placing an order for <laughs> router parts to China, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. You're not going to see your typical broken English and bad punctuation and stuff. Uh, oftentimes, you're going to have, like, done research and know a bunch of things about people and things like that. hmm so on the service uh, business email compromise scams may be unsophisticated relative to money-making schemes using complex malware like uh, Dyer or Zeus, but in many ways the uh, the man-in-email attacks are actually more versatile and adept at sidestepping basic security strategies used by banks and their customers, uh, because instead of having you know even if the if a company has two-factor authentication on their bank account. I'm defeating that if I'm convincing you to send the money for me. Right. Right. If I call the finance department and they log in and use their two factor authentication to send the email or the money, I, I've just worked around that system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so even two factor might not actually be enough of a solution here. Although having two factor on email addresses means it's much harder for someone to take over your email address.
0: The chat room seems to uh, the chat room. You know, they, they find this to be particularly interesting because what it really comes down to is it's it's hacking humans, really. Yep. Exactly. And almost anybody could do that with just a little bit of uh, knowledge, a little a little bit of understanding of human behavior, and you get access to something like an email account. Doesn't yep. take you. Don't have to be some sort or of coding just make wizard, it,
1: right? Uh, you can actually spoof the from address on an email easily. You just you know, and if you set your reply to to be something that's one letter off or something. You can trick most people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a good observation, chat room, And I, 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 I agree saw with you. a
1: great one. I got a, a phishing scam. The first time, actually, I've ever got a, uh, uh, phishing scam that was actually my bank. Mmm. Uh, mm. they usually always are, you know, there's only like five banks in Canada, but they've always been one of the other banks, <laughs> like RBC <laughs> or BMO or something. Yeah. Um, you have and a this bank called BMO? Uh, Bank of Montreal. Oh, so okay.
0: BMO. Cool.
1: Yeah. Um, so the URL, the click through URL actually starts off exactly like the real one. Yeah, it's like www three dot easyweb dot blah blah dot blah, com dash and and then instead of like slash login or whatever, they use just a dash. So it the whole URL looks fine, and then it's like blah execution blah blah, and then dot dot com. It's like oh, that nah, right. doesn't look That's right. Not real. No, no. <laughs> but you know they they definitely. Uh, made the URL look like the real thing by it, encoding the entire URL into the host name. And, you know, I've seen that before, but that one just happened to come in this morning and, and look uh, quite interesting.
0: Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah, I, I've never had one that targeted my bank specifically because my bank's specific to Washington State.
1: Right. Uh, so. It's just interesting that it doesn't happen more in Canada because we only have really like five major banks. But... It, it just always happened. They were always like Royal Bank or Bank of Montreal or something. It's like, nope, not me.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. Plus, right, my Eugene. bank never emails me, and if they do, it's to a certain special email address.
0: So uh, we'll have links to that story in the show notes. Is there any other any thoughts on that one before we move on? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. It's, a, it's an interesting write up. And ouch, forty six million dollars. Yeah, from a company you might have actually heard of too. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, uh, because Noah works in uh, hotel Wi-Fi, so he works in hotels and doing the IT for them, and he deploys Ubiquiti Wi-Fi fairly frequently. I don't know if it's like the number one system he deploys. They're, but
1: they're basically one of the the brands that most people like yeah. for centralized that have, managed Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. For you know. Good devices that are actually I think they're Linux based and
0: Yeah, he delivers essentially Wi Fi as a service and you know, he has he deploys a whole bunch of them. They they detect you know, they're aware of each each unit so they can adjust their signal strength appropriately like yep. you'd expect. And he has a dashboard back at his main office that he manages it all from.
1: Right. I mean, I just, uh, you know, interesting scam no matter what, but the fact that it hit a company uh, most of our audience probably has heard of or maybe even dealt with yeah. uh, just made it that much more interesting yeah. to
0: Yeah, does kind of bring it home a little bit more.
1: And also, when it's a technology company that deals with networking, yeah, you think they would know how to use
0: email? especially when you're moving that
1: <laughs> but much. But when you target the CEOs in the finance department instead of the engineers in the IT
0: department, this is what happens. Mm. Well put. All right, let me tell you about something else. That's DigitalOcean, sponsor of the TechSnap program. And you can use our promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. Wait, you don't know what DigitalOcean is? I'll tell you. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. They have all Linux-backed machines using KVM as the virtualizer, SSDs for the disk I.O., and great connections out to the Internet. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco. Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and Germany. They have a brand new one in Germany that's so gorgeous. Their fastest SSDs yet, so that's nuts. 40 gigabit E connections to each hypervisor, that's nuts. And the location of their Germany data center is perfect for all of Germany's neighbors. So definitely check that out if you need to distribute something over there. And their interface to manage all of this is incredibly simple and intuitive, yet very powerful. If you've been doing IT administration of virtual servers for any time, you know that that is sometimes a black hole of UI nastiness. And somehow DigitalOcean has managed to make it all usable intuitive but not weak it's still a great interface to manage things like DNS and application deployments and backups and transferring to clients and all the things you like generating SSH keys all the things you might in HTML5 console so that way you can watch it from post all the way up to login all the things like that you might need it's it's really slick and then you can scale up as you need to go you can deploy droplets just keep going for infrastructure and you can manage it on a much larger scale with their api so you can snap it into say like puppet or chef or something like that or you can take advantage of a ton of really cool applications already created by the community like for your smartphone just scripting, there is libraries to plug it into your favorite programming or scripting language. It's, it's really awesome stuff. So you can start small for unbelievably low price, like $5 a month. And then as you grow, you can scale up and the pricing is super, super straightforward. Go to digitalocean.com, check them out and use our promo code snapocean. If you need to spin up a server, something that's going to work really well with a public IP address, great performance that you can easily manage. It's not going to take a lot of time to get going. I really would implore you to check out DigitalOcean. It's great mm-hmm. for this, and there's so many interesting things you can do once you have an extremely valuable server up in the cloud. Like For me, it made syncing own cloud between my office and my house so, so straightforward to have that go-between up on a droplet. And then when later on when I tried SyncThing and BitTorrent Sync, same exact thing. And then... When somebody came to me for a friend and said, I want to just put up a small website for my business, it was a slam dunk to go to DigitalOcean. It really works across the board. If you're going to deploy applications and you need back-end infrastructure or you're just doing some testing, use our promo code SNAPOcean. You get a $10 credit. Try that $5 rig, two months for free. And you know what, Alan? Mm -hmm. Uh, A news update. DigitalOcean has free BSD too. I don't know if you knew yep. that. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, you, you, you probably did. I think you somehow like have a like a free BSD hotline, don't you? Something happens with free BSD, you know about it, and. Uh they, uh, so well, uh, I
1: am a FreeBSD developer.
0: That's uh, true. So you actually literally do have a hotline. It's called an IRC chat room that's private. <laughs> uh, so DigitalOcean's got FreeBSD servers, Linux servers, all that stuff. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, on our next story here uh, comes maybe out of Black Hat. I'm not quite sure. Tell me about it. Uh, so this is
1: um, it's kind of related to Black Hat, but okay. not necessarily. Uh, and it's just a op-ed type piece over at ThreatPost uh, saying that we may be entering the era of the security research prohibition hmm. uh, in particular. Uh, as if the uh, Oracle nonsense last week wasn't bad enough, right. uh, we have the U.S.'s uh, proposed way of implementing the Wassner Agreement, which is that uh, arms dealing thing that they've decided also includes anything uh, to do with computers. Okay. Um, and basically, the U.S. implementation of the rules, which govern the export of so-called intrusion software, among other things, has been criticized sharply by lawyers, security experts, and software vendors who say that the proposed rules are too vague and threaten to chill legitimate security research and other activities. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, if you find an exploit for uh, an application and you say, want to send it to the vendor so they can fix it, that would be you uh, conducting arms dealing.
0: What? How can that be quite... Because like, exploits are like guns. But I'm trying to think, like, what if I found a flaw in a gun, or I found a flaw in a weapon system, or a drone, or, a, a, or, or a, even a military vehicle? It, would that yeah, be... But
1: I found a flaw in my Jeep car, or like a yeah, right. know, vehicle. Same
0: thing? Is that is that cyber weapon? <laughs> yeah, but weapons? basically,
1: if, if it's an exploit, if it can be used to break into a computer, it's a weapon, and weapon smuggling is illegal. <laughs> And stuff like this. Uh, so the rules came out uh, May 20th and then they uh, uh, had a period where people could comment on them. Okay. Uh, and the uh, the Commerce Department didn't have any experience with writing these kinds of rules, obviously. Uh, and the staff attorney at the EFF said that during a panel on the Lastner agreement at the Black Hat Conference, uh, there was, uh, you know, everybody was mostly concerned about how horrendously vague the language is. Yeah. Such that well, the way that's written, that could apply to this, or it might not. But you know, if if there's a chance it could apply to that, then somebody's going to apply it to that, and it's going to screw everything up. Mm. So, the Bureau of Industry and Security at the Commerce Department proposed the rules uh, in May and opened it up to a sixty-day comment period. Many security researchers and attorneys submitted comments, and in a rarely seen move, the uh, BIS, or the Bureau of Industry and Security, said it will revise the rules, rewrite them, and open it up for a new uh, public comment period again once they're done.
0: Oh, okay. That's a positive development.
1: Yeah, although I don't see them making it clear (laughs) enough to work. Yeah, I don't think they know Uh, what they're doing. Yes, exactly. They're not computer people. They're the Bureau of Industry and Security. Anyway, the Waston rules have been uh, compared to, in many circles, to the export controls on encryption software that came into effect in the '90s, Uh, and there's an important lesson to be drawn there. Because what have we learned from those? Uh, We just that they they made the internet worse.
0: Yes, three four weeks ago, we had a story about how these very laws and rules exactly. uh, Well,
1: it's not just like half of the vulnerabilities we've seen in the last like logjam. Yeah. This yes, yeah, all V2 you. and V3 stuff and lots of them are all because of this leftover junk from this export control crap. Uh. So let's do it again but make it worse and be like, you can't even talk about vulnerabilities. You know, and all, all it's doing is weakening the security of the internet as a whole. Uh, so I have a great quote here at the end. Because the BIS rules are currently written are so vague uh, that they const- uh, about what constitutes an intrusion or intrusion software things such as metasploit and other common offensive tools could be regulated right and we've already seen uh meta or um, rapid7 the company that distributes metasploit requiring you to like promise you're not from certain countries in order to use the software and so on or, or that you don't work for any government to be able to use the software mm-hmm. uh you know and then Depending how you interpret these rules, and they're so vague, you can interpret them in any way. Uh, even sharing information about your own security research with a coworker in another country could be considered smuggling arms into that country, right? Uh, researchers are quite wary of this kind of stuff because it means they literally can't talk to their colleagues about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, and
1: and then, and then it's like if I have to, you know jump through hoops just to be able to talk to somebody about this research I'm trying to do, it makes it really hard to do research. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it
0: does. Uh, and I've heard the same complaint from Apple developers. If they can't talk to, because of NDAs from Apple, they, you know, they have a hard time developing it's, things and they have we to have solve a, the same uh, problems over and over again.
1: Yep. we had. Uh, there's a great uh, war story about that in this week's episode of BSD Now. We talked to Brian Cantrell, uh, who came up with DTrace. And then, you know, one day Apple calls up and is like, can, we, can you come up to Cupertino and talk to us about D-Trace? And he's like, I'm not coming up to Cupertino, but if you guys want to come here. <laughs> like, Good for well, him. How many, people, how many people can we bring? Can we bring 10 people? And he's like, I suppose we have a big enough room for that, whatever. And then they started like right away were asking very specific questions like, oh, I wonder what they're doing. And then the other guy's like, the one guy from Apple's like, I'm not allowed to say, but uh, here's some tickets to WWDC. And, and they announced that they had ported D-Trace to Mac OS X. <laughs> and it's like, yes, if they could have just asked the guy who wrote it some questions or told them that that's what they were doing, they probably could have solved a lot of the issues they had with their initial implementation. Yeah,
0: yeah. Boy.
1: But yeah, secrecy doesn't really help here. You know, uh, I don't know how we're... Having something like the Wassenaar Agreement stop companies like VuPen mm-hmm. and Hacking Team from selling exploits mm-hmm. would be good. But muzzling researchers is never a good thing.
0: Well, very much so. And, and we just, it's like how many times do we have to learn that lesson? To yeah, so no, where like, we can say it on this show and everybody listening, that's obvious to them because we've learned mm-hmm. it so many times. But yet the yeah. policymakers, not it's obvious. Like, we're literally reliving the 90s.
1: Uh, you know, doing the the Clipper chip stuff and the the key escrow, and then wow. now the export agreements uh, or uh, restrictions on crypto, and just it's just like,
0: did we learn nothing in the last twenty years? Jeez, no kidding, Alan. You're right. It does feel like that a lot. That's kind it, of depressing, actually. That's uh, well, because
1: somebody somebody brought uh, a better one up, more specific to Canada, but they're, like the Canadian dollars were seventy cents U.S. Um, the Blue Jays are winning (laughs) the World Series. (laughs) It's like, it's 1991 all over again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right. Any other thoughts on that story?
1: Uh, no, let's put that one.
0: All right. Let me tell you about Ting. Ting is my cell phone company and it's mobile that makes sense. And you can find out more by going to techsnap.ting.com. I'll tell you why they're my mobile company. I only pay for what I use. It's just my minutes, my messages, my megabytes and whatever I use. That's just what I pay for. It's $6 for the phone line. So I've got a couple of phones. Because it's $6, and the phones are unlocked on Ting. This makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You kind of got to wonder why your mobile carrier doesn't operate that way. In fact, some of them are trying to rip off different aspects of the Ting experience, but nobody can nail all of Ting. Ting has no whole customer service. Ting has an incredible dashboard to let you manage all of this. They have a very active and very vibrant and passionate community that is very useful when you're trying something outside the box. And best of all, Ting puts it all out there. Uh, I'm gonna tell you more about that in a second, but I want you to go to techsnap.ting.com right now and just check them out and see if they're a wireless service that makes sense for you. If you don't need to spend a whole bunch of money, like uh, I was going over to the savings calculator and uh, different times my wife and I have had different cell phone, cell phone plans and Ting has a savings calculator where you put your actual monthly usage in. So say like I use 230 minutes and Angela uses 120. And say because we use Telegram or Hangouts, we get like five messages and she gets, like, one. I get, like, five from, like, alerting services that don't use anything but text. And then, like, megabytes. We're pretty good with Wi-Fi. So, you know, for travel and commute, I'll use around 500 megabytes, 480 megabytes. She uses it a bit more because she's not quite as Wi-Fi savvy, so she'll use about 650 megabytes of data usage. And it's about 200 after tax and all that kind of stuff, but I don't really know what exactly what it was. So, I put 100 for her line, 100 for mine. I could tweak that a bit. You know, I could put like I could say maybe it was 80 for my line and 80 for hers that might be a little closer here. And then I'll hit calculate my savings. And then what Ting will do is they'll compare that bill against what your Ting bill would be. So right there, over 2 years period with that particular cell phone plan, that's a pretty common plan usage, mm-hmm. you'd save $1100, $1116 over 2 years by switching to Ting. And they have a GSM and CDMA network you get to choose from, and if you go to textnap.ting.com, they'll take $25 off your first device. Or if you have a Ting compatible device, and you might since they have both those networks, you get twenty five dollars of service credit. And something else we've been following with Ting, it's not directly related to their wireless service, but they're taking everything they've learned in wireless and they're trying to apply it to fiber internet. And we've been kind of mm-hmm. following this in, in the TechNet program. And one of the things people notice is it costs four hundred dollars to set up fiber internet with Ting. And Alan, that probably doesn't sound like much to you, but it's <laughs> but it is a lot to it's a lot of money to some yep. people. So Ting explains why installing fiber internet costs four hundred dollars. Because unlike
1: other fiber They make you pay For a three year contract Yeah Well and do you want to Do you want to share How much your installation was Do you want to just mention I'll, it Well my, my installation was free So that's
0: Oh 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 I think it was the monthly but Mine was a three year contract That's oh, oh that's what it was And then the, there was the monthly yeah, That was, it was outrageous It a three
1: year contract But the monthly I won't make you say like was $2, the $2,000
0: I won't make you say What the monthly cost is Because yeah. that, that was the cost That was so outrageous yeah. I thought that was The it's, installation it cost It is
1: And it's guaranteed For three years It's, <laughs> it's not
0: fun Alright so here's what Here's what they had to say Jesus asks uh, Why Why on the Ting Internet page are we charging $400 for Ting Internet installation? The $400 is really just to recoup the cost that is involved in installing the Internet service. So, you know, we don't really have any desire to make any money off of the fee. Uh, It's really about just covering what is involved in bringing Ting Internet to a home. Um, In Charlottesville, for
1: example, that involves bringing fiber from the street. To the side of a house with someone in a
0: you know a bucket truck or a vehicle and installing the fiber into your home and wiring it over to wherever you would want the wireless gateway inbox that we then provide as part of that setup fee that bathes your house in high-speed gigabit Ow! Wi-Fi. Yeah, so um, you know all of that is a, a, a process that requires time and equipment and tools and people, um, and so really that's what goes into that fee. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go check them out. Uh, I, I want fiber here at the studio so, yeah, so like, bad.
1: To, to describe the process that got involved to for setting it up in my house, it's like on one occasion, guys with bucket truck came and they ran the, along the telephone poles from around the corner where the, the node for the fiber was, along the telephone poles up to the pole at the end of my driveway. Then on a different day, a guy with a different truck comes uh, <laughs> and has to like drill the hole inside yeah. of my house... Yep. And run the conduit up to the roof, and stretch it across from the pole to my house, and then into the house. Seal it all up so it doesn't leak water into my house. And then there's this spool of cable left in my house. And then on a different day, yet another guy that's a different kind of expert had to bring this special machine, and uh, wire, you know, strip the cable, build it all up, and set it up, and like fuse the glass together, and and hook it all up, and then run the fiber out into the actual access switch device that gives me. Ethernet ports that I can hook up to my internet. Man. Uh, now, their process is a little more streamlined. probably doesn't involve so many separate guys on uh, making separate appointments to come on separate days. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot involved. And, yeah, they're they're definitely not just trying to get $400 out of you.
0: You can go to uh, techsnap.ting.com to learn more about Ting. And Boy, wouldn't it be great if Ting could bring what they've learned to fiber internet? And if you want to know more about Ting's crazy uh, fiber internet, you can go to ting.com slash internet, ting.com slash internet. But do us a favor. Go to techsnap.ting. .com first. That way we get support and uh, you keep B- uh, the BSD Now program. You keep the net program on the air. Speaking of BSD Now, <clears throat> that's what I was going to mention. Uh, a couple of days left. Epic interview. Oh yeah, we had an epic interview. Two crazy things going on in the BSD Now program. Mention the interview and then I'll mention the yes. shirt. Uh,
1: right, so um, this is actually recorded early, uh, but when, if you're watching this when it actually comes out, then yesterday we will have aired uh, a special BSD Now recorded the week before. But anyway, <laughs> Uh, it's a uh, ninety-plus minute interview with Brian Cantrell, who's a CTO over at Joyent, but he worked at Sun, uh, invented DTrace, worked on ZFS and Zones. Mm-hmm. Talks a lot about Linux uh, virtualization, uh, running Linux Docker containers on FreeBSD and Alumos. Uh, basic, uh, all kinds of stuff, including telling some great war stories about debugging a, a performance problem on like an old. Um, E ten thousand K machine, that which was like, you know, this is in the like late '90s or something, and it's got sixty four processors and sixty four gigs of RAM, which is numbers people had never heard of before. Um, and yeah. it had this random performance problem, and they, they didn't have the tools like DTrace to figure out how how it worked. Or I've heard or from what a, the I've heard was. from a
0: couple of people that it was a good interview on the chat room. Yep. And watched it live, says it was also an epic interview. So yep, it, like the good. origin of D-Trace and. Uh,
1: a bunch of great stories, including uh, great stories about RM minus RF.
0: <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, the chairman says, says it was awesome. I end up rewatching it. Uh, hey, all right. So that's one. That's part one of BSD Now's e- epicness. And now, also a little bit left on the uh, BSD Now second anniversary T-shirt at teespring.com/bsd105. The usual BSDs, and I think I noticed a Z Zed right there on that. Uh, yes. Uh, that's the FreeBSD mascot guy
1: there. with uh, He's got a gold Z and then a hard drive. Uh, and then Puffy, the OpenBSD logo. He's got a Wi-Fi router, which he's broken in half <laughs> <laughs> to to save you.
0: Uh, and then NetBSD runs on everything, including flying toasters. Flying toasters, indeed. Teespring.com slash BSD 105. The shirts met its goal, so they will be shipping. And you can grab one now for a few days left. Uh, it'll be less yeah, than what's showing open. on the screen.
1: Right, you'll have until the end of August, so hurry up and get your order in.
0: Yeah, very much, very much. All right, there you go. And with the uh, news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the JB site, or even better, our subreddit at TechSnap.reddit.com. First email comes in from Jeremy, and it's about ICMP traffic. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. I thought it would be an interesting discussion to have over ICMP. It's common for many admins to block pings for security reasons. While I can see the advantages, say, of a home router not responding to an ping, I'm on the fence about servers. There is much debate on the net over the merits of allowing a server to respond to pings, blocking all pings, or allowing specific ICMP messages. Obviously, if one blocks all ICMP traffic, a lot of monitoring software and other features will break. And uh, he kind of breaks down a, a list of different things that yeah, could break because uh, of it. Your thoughts, specifically,
1: Alan? there's some stuff for, um, if you send a packet that's too big for some router along the way, mm-hmm. it sends an ICMP back saying, hey, could you break that up into pieces? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you don't get that, then you can't establish a connection properly. And plus, I think you you we've, anybody
0: problems. who's worked in the industry uh, has had this issue where you're going to troubleshoot, you and you're like, oh, I'll ping that server, and you go to ping, you're like, oh, right, we block ICMP, you can't do that. Like, yeah. that. That's very annoying.
1: Yeah, so you can block specifically pings and then allow the other stuff. But you, normally the reason to block it is to prevent abuse. But really, if you're using a reasonable operating system, it probably has <laughs> some system for this. For example, on FreeBSD, the default is to reply to the first 100 ICMP messages per second. But if you get more than that, to just ignore the later ones. Right. So it will allow traffic, but if it gets abusive, it'll just stop. That way, you know, regular messages work fine. But uh, if somebody is like trying to ping fled you or something, then it stops it from working.
0: So, uh, what do you think about? Uh, how do you feel about ICMP pings? A security risk? No big deal. If blocked, how do you feel? It's the best way to handle other ICMP traffic. For example, uh, just block echo requests.
1: Right. Uh, we allow everything, but with the limit of one hundred per second.
0: So, you think that's sort of the good middle is, uh, ground? for for us. We very much use
1: it as diagnostics. To you know, I want to monitor the connection between here and here. And you know we we log uh, we monitor and log packet loss from like six different probe locations to all of our network of ah, hundred and fifty servers, yeah uh, <laughs> of course, and so yeah, as long as nobody's uh going overboard with it, we allow it, but if they go oh if if the aggregate number that we get in a second is too high, we'll stop answering okay so this even prevents you know if you did you could you know allow so many per host per second or something, but then in a distributed analysis service where there's say ten thousand bad guys then they can overwhelm you. But if you're just doing 100 as the arbitrary limit, then it's simple enough.
0: Yeah, that does keep it simple. All right, our buddy Alster writes in. He says, I thought you guys might like a follow-up on the absurd- absurdity that was my giant LVM of ancient hard drives. Remember this, Alan? Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, so I had, used, I had used all of my LVM extents because, well, reasons. Really, I had no, way, I had no reason and idea why I did it. I made it impossible for me to shrink my LVM. He said several more boring details and small hoops later, I finally uh, had my LVM dismantled and I could start building my ZFS mirrors. Oh, I'm sorry, my ZFS mirrors. I found a handy online guide and did step one, install the PPA and ZFS packages. I'd already done this on step two, I specified the name, disk and mirroring. That worked on the first try and so on to step three, I realized you're at the bottom of the page. So step four, it looked like step five, and so on. He goes on to say, long story short, whoever said it's easier to take something apart than it is to put it back together clearly wasn't transitioned from LVM to ZFS. The only hiccup I had was that my ZFS pool didn't mount on boot. A quick search, a small edit, and it's all set. Cheers, and thanks for the great show. So he managed to move from that monstrosity over to ZFS, Alan. Good. I think you probably inspired him. I think there's a chance yep. you might have inspired that transition. I think you may have inspired a few transitions. Marlon. Um, being able to sleep nights might have uh, inspired him as well. <laughs> wow. but bump. Let it speak for itself, in other words. Marlon writes in, and Alan, I don't know if you specifically have the answer to this, but I've actually seen this in our chat I room a few I times, too. I think I might actually have the answer to this. Okay, good. So he says, greetings all. Firstly, a huge thanks for the awesome content you put out. It's hard to express just how useful it's been to my professional life. But suffice to say, the quality of content your shows disseminates is astounding, timely, relevant, and just plain awesome. Wow, thank you. Uh, that's mm-hmm. very nice of you, Marlon. Anyways, I've recently started looking into FreeBSD and ZFS, largely because TechSnap, and also I'm looking at running a, P- a PFSense and free NAS for a firewall and a NAS solution for my ever-growing media at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are rather new knowledge domains for me, so these are rather new knowledge domains for me, but I'm really excited to get going. Regardless, Alan mentioned that they were going to add serial ports to a TP-Link router at BSDCAN. Uh, And it was about a handful of episodes ago. I'm curious (laughs) if he has made any resources available with regards to this mod. I've been poking around on YouTube and the BSDCAN 2015 website and Alan's Twitter, and I'm not seeing much reference to it. Can someone point me in the right direction? Again, thanks for the awesome content. It's truly appreciated. So he wants to load FreeBSD on a TP-Link router with the serial port.
1: All right. uh, So it's on GitHub uh, FreeBSD Wi-Fi build and I'll drop a link in the show notes. Oh, perfect. And it has a wiki with all the instructions on doing it, and it also has a list of different uh, supported hardware, uh, including the different uh, TP-Link models, but also some D-Link models, Atheros reference chips, uh, air station, Buffalo air stations, a bunch of different uh, models that you uh, can do it to. Uh, for the actual soldering-on of the uh, the serial port, yeah. Um, do, uh, OpenWRT has... Uh, better picture guide than what we have but oh. um, nobody's
0: making them pre-built though what about uh, on eBay
1: yeah. or something like that yeah Maybe? I suppose Maybe. but it's like I don't know do I trust a random guy on eBay yeah. to solder something and it's not, hard,
0: it's not a very hard mod
1: no uh, the so on the board there's four holes already there so you just put the pins in solder it and wire a cable up mm. uh, I've watched people do it it takes like six minutes
0: nice very cool and you'll have a link uh, to the GitHub page in the show notes
1: Yep, it's you, there now.
0: You are the best. All right, Carl writes in with a ZFS question. says, some checksums don't add up. My, many moons ago, Alan mentioned on server on a, a server fault thread, which he links us to, about a ZFS pool with lots of checksum errors. The OP's original question is actually not what I'm interested in. The OP had passed their Z pool status output, and I noticed something interesting. The individual device checksum errors did not add up to the number of checksum errors for the pool. How is that possible? In the example, the pool had 42 checksum errors, while the pool's four devices had 30, 19, 16, and 24 errors, respectively. One would think that there should be 89 errors in the pool, since the pool had no redundancy. So, obviously, there's some concept that I'm missing. In a normal pool with redundant VDEVs, I see separate errors total for the device, the mirrors, the RAID Zs, etc., and the pools all independently. What does it mean for these virtual devices like VDevs and Pools to have checksum error counts when they're not actually doing any actual storage? Thanks for any light you can shed.
1: Basically, uh, the errors kind of bubble up. So if there's an error on a specific hard drive, but all the information is redundant, that device might end up with zero uh, checksum errors because the device has never had a problem. So if if the hard drive has an error, but it's a mirror, then the mirror itself has never had a checksum problem Uh. because it replaced the... The bit that had a checksum error with the copy from the other device. So in a way, it's so not double counting. One hard drive could be yeah. So one hard drive could have had ten checksum errors, but the mirror that is that hard drive is in could have have a
0: zero. Because it's it's However, another way. If, is, that, is ZFS mm-hmm. is saying I it's saying I was never fooled by the error. But I never got right. I caught the error. It never it never leaked into your data. So therefore, it's not exactly. counting the error.
1: Okay. Yeah. So it counts it for the hard drive, but it doesn't count it for the mirror. And then. Um, if somehow the checksum error happened and both drives had the checksum error, it would be slightly confusing, but the mirror would report one checksum error and both drives would each have one,
0: mm.
1: right? Because mm-hmm. on that one uh, block, both were wrong uh, or whatever. And then if you have, uh, and then in your top level, again, it's if it trickles up. So if, because of the way um, ZFS works, if you have one uh, a checksum error at the mirror level, uh, it's Past the redundancy, so it's gonna the pool is gonna have had that many checksum errors as well. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And also, the other thing that can happen is if you remove a device and replace. So if you had a mirror where one drive had fifty checksum errors, and one it had zero, and your so your mirror at zero or something. Uh, if you replace that hard drive and added a new one, both are gonna be at zero again. But you know, or if your mirror had one error in the past, but you end up over time, removing both of those drives and replacing them, yeah well, not, not at the same time. Yeah, but, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, then they'll both be back at zero, but the mirror will have one, and so on. Okay. So it can be slightly confusing, but it basically shows you up to what level the uh, errors had actually caused you problems. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah, And Also, right. if you do uh, zpool status minus F or R, I'm, I forget, anyway. Uh, it will actually list what files the checksum errors were in only if the checksum error was bad enough, or basically made it high enough that it actually affected the file.
0: Right, okay. Right. Because
1: if you have redundancy and, only, and, and the redundancy is enough to cover up the error, then no files were damaged. But if you have a no redundancy pool and there was a checksum error, uh, ZFS will give you a list of the files saying, hey, this file at this offset uh, you can't access because the data is gone, sorry. <laughs> mm. You should have had redundancy. Uh, so yeah, the errors will be lower at the higher levels uh, meaning is because ZFS managed to correct some of those errors but obviously in a no redundancy pool, not all of them. This can be confusing because metadata about a file, if it's very important, even if you only have one disk, ZFS stored it in three different places on that disk. So it can have a checksum error and still recover from it, even on a single disk. But, most, uh, but data errors in files, unless you have copies equals two or something, then one checksum error is going to take out that file. Mm. Whereas um, with metadata, depending on how important it is, it might have two or three copies automatically. Uh, and that's why you can end up ZFS actually being able to recover from some errors even in a single disk pool.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And that's why the counts differ.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, good question, Carl. If you'd like to send your question to the show, just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the dropdown, or you can go to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com, or just email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And we do want your questions, because we're recording double episodes over the next few weeks, so we want to add them all up and squirrel them away like for, like squirrels do for the winter, but we do it for double episodes, and then rock out your yep. good questions. So if there's been something on your mind, send it in to us, and we'll answer it on a future episode of the TechSnap program. But with the feedback all done, Well, I guess. That must mean it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup has stories that we just couldn't fit in the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on on your own after the show. And a lot of these links came from our incredibly intelligent subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com. And our first one, well, it's just a sign of the future Them mobile processors are just getting faster. The Snapdragon H20. H20? 820 has been officially released. I'm sorry, it's really warm in the studio. My brain is losing it. Uh, Qualcomm Snapdragon 810 and 808 processor continue to be the flagships right now, but we are learning now about the 820 processor. And, Alan, are you ready for this? It's faster.
1: Yep, it comes out in uh, Q4 of this year, and it uh, looks like it'll be quite yeah.
0: good. I just, you know, it's just interesting to cover it, because those those Snapdragons just continue to be faster and faster, but... Yep. There you go. And use less and less power. Mm, which is always a good thing. We've got a conspiracy theory one here for you in the roundup this week. Lay it down, Alan. Lay it down. Ah, so advertising
1: networks. Uh, somebody who works inside of them has uh, come forward saying that advertising networks uh, purposely make sites slower uh, by blocking the loading of the ads uh, so they can let the auctions run longer so they can get a better price for the ad they show. I've wondered about that. Because yeah, on like, any news site, yeah. the, the page load time is mo- dominated by waiting for the ads. And it's like, how are the ad companies not design faster servers? It's not that hard to deliver images it really was, quickly. Was, you know, I've done it.
0: One of, one of the factors when we decided no advertising on the Jupyter Broadcasting website. It was one of yep. the factors.
1: Uh, well, it turns out they're purposely being slow so they can let the auction run longer so the price goes up.
0: Dirty. Yeah, dirty play. Uh, more sword. details
1: about that, go check it out. It's uh, quite interesting.
0: What do we know about this design flaw in the Intel processors that opens the uh, door to rootkits? It's something like with the, you know, like in the uh, way.
1: It's in the hardware, and there's not a good way to fix it.
0: Yeah, there's some some CPUs, some microcode Intel can patch for some, but it's Arc. like it goes way, way, way back in the x86 code. Yeah, so it only. Well, it, I don't know how far back it goes, but it mostly affects Sandy Bridge processors. Oh, I actually heard it went further back than that, but well, that's good.
1: Okay, good. Okay, good. Uh, Apparently, the feature was first added in 1997. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, But by leveraging the flaw, attackers can install a rootkit in the processor system management mode, uh, a protected region of code that underpins all firmware security features. So it basically can run before things like EFI.
0: Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's yikes. Yikes. All right.
1: Uh, And being able to even prevent you from uh, wiping your BIOS to prevent... Uh, An infected BIOS from reinfecting your OS when you reinstall. So all kinds of fun.
0: Vice's uh, motherboard section of their site is talking about rowhammer.js. It's the most ingenious hack I've ever seen. This is the uh, Alex. So
1: if you remember, uh, rowhammer is the one where by hammering on a specific row in a a RAM chip, you could cause a bit flip. Uh, Well, somebody's figured out how to do it from JavaScript.
0: That's nice. So in the web browser. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. And
1: there's a lot of detail there, and uh, if you're interested, definitely check that one out.
0: Okay, now, uh, next one in here, silicon, replacing silicon with gallium. am I saying that right? Gallium. Gallium, thank you. Gallium nitrate in uh, chips could reduce energy use by 20%.
1: Yes, so uh, some MIT researchers think that if we made our computer chips out of gallium nitride instead of silicon, we would be using less electricity. Mm. It could be interesting for phones and other things that run up batteries.
0: I wonder, are they talking about less le- electricity in the manufacturing process or in the actual no, device? No, I think
1: it's the operation. Oh, so okay. it would be better for things that run
0: up batteries. All right, so Samsung's had a lot of announcements today and last week. Samsung mm. has also unveiled VNAN, high-performance SSDs with insanely fast read speeds of 5.5 yes. gigabytes a second.
1: Yeah, so these are uh, 3D VNAND Uh And they claim it can read at 5,500 megabytes a second, write at 1,800 megabytes a second, uh, get up to a million uh, IOPS for read and 120,000 for write. So those write IOPS are not much better than uh, existing stuff, although Mm. uh, 1,800 megabytes per second is better than existing stuff. I'll take that. And they have uh, that one in capacities up to 6.4 terabytes. Uh, with an endurance of 32 terabytes of writes per day for five years. Any word on pricing? Because I got to imagine. Nope, no word on pricing yet. They also have, uh, apparently introduced a 16 terabyte uh, 2.5 inch SSD. Uh, no word on pricing, but uh, the Ars Technica article suggests probably upwards of $10,000. Ooh. But uh, you know, pricing pressure will eventually push that down. And uh, I think that will also definitely push down the prices of cheaper SSDs.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, on the list List shift gears, uh, everyone knows in warfare, the best way to be successful is to pre-announce your plans and forecast your enemy exactly what you're going to do. So that's why the Obama administration has leaked that they have decided to retaliate against China for the OPM hack.
1: Well, maybe that's more of their deterrence type thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, we're going to start hitting you back every time you hit us, so stop hitting us, but...
0: You know they've actually they've actually never still officially on the record confirmed it was China. These are still <laughs> leaks from within the administration. These are not coming from actual like yeah, uh, it's not official statements. They just asked the they just asked um, um, the White House spokesperson. I can't remember what day it was, but earlier this week, if they were confirmed it's China yet. And he's, they're still not confirming officially it was China. Well,
1: if, if if they confirm it, they would actually have to furnish some proof. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah,
1: okay. You know. Yeah. And obviously, China has made that as hard as possible, or whoever actually did it, it, you know, tries pretty hard not to get caught.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very very much so, I would imagine. All right. Now, uh, everyone loves a PDF download, so that's why we included a direct link to a PDF in the roundup this week. What was this one about? This is coming from Usenext.org. Yes. Uh, no
1: one can hack my mind comparing the uh, security practices of experts and non-experts. Mm. So basically, uh, looking at the advice we give people and how practical it is to actually follow it versus what experts actually do, rather than what they, what they tell you to
0: do. Right. Do as I and, do as yeah. I say, not as I do.
1: Yeah. Uh, so you know, maybe what they do is what's most practical and easy to do, uh, and what they tell you to do maybe doesn't work, and, and so on. Uh, but yeah, it basically walks through what experts do and what we tell non-experts to do, and tries to figure out what makes the most sense.
0: This gap is often, I find a lot of times, newbies come up and ask experts, <clears throat> Hey, Chris, which microphone should I get? And a lot of times, people in the room will be like, oh, you should get this microphone, you should get this microphone. They'll start jumping in and naming all these microphones. And they all suck. Like, none of the people in the room would ever be caught dead using that microphone, but they'll start recommending that microphone to newbies all the time. It seems Mm -hmm. to be something about, like, for some reason, people who've gotten to become quote unquote experts in the field, like, don't still, like, they still don't always preach what they actually practice. And that drives me crazy.
1: Other times it's like, oh well, you need two factor authentication on everything and you have to, you know, be super paranoid all the time. It's like, well, even you aren't that paranoid, right? Right. It's like, but there's a difference between, you know, what you should do if you want to be secure and what you should do if you want to be reasonably secure, right? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it also depends how you ask the question.
0: Next story in the roundup, the European Central Bank has announced on Thursday, the 24th of July, a little bit ago, that the website was the victim of a cyber attack resulting in the security of the site being compromised. Did you get a chance to see this one, Al? Uh, It was recommended by the chat room. Ah. I didn't have
1: that much time to research. The
0: ECB stated that while most of the database was encrypted, some of the database held contact details such as email addresses, phone numbers, and addresses in unencrypted format. They believe that approximately 20,000 people that had registered with the bank's website were affected by the breach. Yep, I can uh, see some spear phishing in the future. Spear phishing in the future, indeed. Uh, attackers actively exploit Windows bug that uses USB sticks to infect PCs. It's an in-the-wild yes. exploit, reminiscent of those that kind of unleashed Stuxnet really. Yeah, it's uh, the basically... Works the same way the Stuxnet
1: flaw did. It turns out Microsoft didn't fix it quite good enough. Uh, the difference <laughs> was the Stuxnet version could be done remotely. This one actually only works on a physical USB stick. Okay. Uh, what's really interesting is that the Microsoft fix also includes an option to have it alert you when the exploit is attempted against you. That's kind of neat. Yes. I like that. Uh, so when you plug in a USB stick that tries to do this, it can pop up and warn you, so that, among other things, you don't go stick it in a computer
0: that doesn't have the patch or something. <laughs> I uh I guess that would be nice because then you could let them know, hey, your USB device has this problem. Yeah. You should get that or just throw yeah. it away. Or
1: yeah. hey, yeah, that 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 one needs to go in a case or be smashed with a hammer or something. Yeah.
0: yeah. Hey Alan, uh the Roundup here always likes to prove that everybody does their best work when they rush. And that's why a rush to put death records online lets anyone be killed.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh so yeah, in some places in the US you can uh yeah. request a death certificate online. Uh, by sending them, and then basically you send the records from the doctor and the funeral home. Of course, you can just pretend to be a doctor in a funeral home, and now whoever you want is, is officially dead as far as the government's concerned. concerned.
0: That's a great prank.
1: Trying to come back to life from the government is actually kind of difficult. That's a great prank.
0: Uh, well, great, I mean awful, but like, yes. yeah. All right, Alan, 100, I mean, I'm sorry, 115 batshit stupid things you can put on the internet in as fast as I can go, someone get me a drink. What the hell is this?
1: This is basically a lightning talk from DEF CON. And if you start flipping through the slides, they were scanning around on the internet, connecting to random VNC servers, uh, and they found all kinds of things. No. So, oh, look, somebody's TV station. Oh, look, some German factory thing. Oh, look, somebody's Windows CE is exposed on the internet. What's going on An here? asterisk oh, box. asterisk server. Let's take over somebody's phone system.
0: Korean power generator. It's like,
1: this is running a power plant. And the remote Holy control thing is, i just VNC into
0: it. <clears throat> a boring Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, what does it say? System moots. This is some sort of Mac
1: server. It's a Mac, but it's got some kind of exploit has been installed onto it. So the user doesn't know there's a VNC server running on it. Oh,
0: it's also, I can tell it's, it's running its Mac OS server too. It's not Mac OS desktop. So it's a server Mac. Uh, wait, there, oh, they gotta, they gotta zoom up, there it is. Yeah, yeah. I was looking and at that, look, at command.exe in the file name, system system 32 yeah. on a Mac. Yeah,
1: it looks like a Windows path, it's
0: very strange. Yeah, Chinese host with private keys. Yep. Nice. So somebody,
1: they get, they get into the machine and actually get access to the SSH keys so you can spoof that host. Dentistry
0: lab, oh my yep. gosh, please touch the screen to start the system so it's a lab computer.
1: Yeah, where you can actually, um... It's for dentistry uh, students to practice on people. Wow, on, on dummies. We can't go people. through
0: all 130 of these, but this no. is <laughs> this is great. Somebody, this, is,
1: this I, is watching live spying on someone writing Python. Oh look, it's the desktop machine at some college. I could put something nasty on the screen and find the professor.
0: Scandal <laughs> selfie or uh, Scott a, a, a selfie, yeah, Scott a selfie. I can
1: take over the heating and air conditioning system yeah. at this hotel. Just
0: to start, yep. You know what? I you know actually now that now that I see that screen. I had clients that had a Canon um, a Canon copy machine that had a picture of the copy machine with push to start, and that copy machine, I remember for a fact, ran VNC because that's how the vendor managed it. Yep. Oh, and, wow.
1: Yeah, there's just a quick lightning talk of like all this random great. stuff that you can take over just by poking the internet.
0: Love it. I love it. All right, next story in the roundup. Privacy alert! Your laptop or phone battery could track you online. What?
1: Yeah, so as part of the new... Uh, way forward with HTML and so on, browsers are working on a battery status API where it can tell the site how much battery you have left so the site can decide whether it wants to play a video or something like that. Or, mm. you know, how the site wants to respond based on, oh, if you're low on battery, I'm going to try to be nice. Or if you're not, then I'm going to use more features kind of thing. Uh, except if the site can pull your battery and then it sees you come back later, it can be like, oh, well, you know, basically it could use that information uh, of, like oh, how big your battery is. Right. How, how big your battery the is. Charge capacity, uh, et cetera. You know, how fast you're discharging. When the last time you recharge it. You know, it's whatever data metric. it has. It's another metric. Yeah. That they can put into a device fingerprint and yeah. make it easier to follow you, even if you're in like private browsing mode or something or, you know, do not track.
0: Alan, can I introduce you to Gigapath? You know about this? It's new. Okay. It's hot. Gigapath. It's something brand new. I want to tell you all about it. It's hot. It's fast. And you can get it in Korea right now. Yeah. So, multipath TCP is
1: an interesting subject. Uh, Upcoming interview on BSD Now about one of the people working on it. Mm. Uh, But they're using it on cell phone networks in Korea. And uh, by basically uh, using multiple connections to actually transfer data uh, in one virtual connection, Mm -hmm. uh, they've managed to transfer up to a gigabit per second to a handset.
0: Now, doesn't iOS 9 have this feature where they can... iOS
1: has multipath TCP, but will only use it if it's talking to Apple.
0: Oh, I thought, okay, okay. I guess in 9, in iOS 9, what it is, is it, it, can, it can switch between Wi Fi and cellular, but it doesn't do both of them at the same time as quickly. Something like that. Um, like you have some new again, feature around uh, that.
1: Multi, uh, multipath TCP requires both ends to support it. Right. So the iPhone has it, but yeah. it'll only use it when it's talking so to they, Apple. they've
0: whitelisted it in some kind of fashion?
1: Yeah. so basically whitelisted only Apple. Yeah. So it w- can actually use both connections at the same time or, uh, and fail over gracefully between them, but only
0: when talking to Apple. Alan, I love this tweet, the last link in the roundup. Yep. This is just dot, dot, dot. It says the tweet, and then it's a picture of the word cyber. And then it's an answer for blank. means never having to say you're sorry. Cyber yeah. means never having to say you're sorry. Basically, yeah. it was a cyber attack. So our poor security, our malpractice, never supporting and implementing its proper uh, procedures in our infrastructure, not our fault. It was a cyber attack. It was cyber, there's nothing we can do. But yeah, <laughs> that's a great Cards Against Humanity. Yes, that is something we've talked about on this show is like, oh, nope, sorry, cyber attack, sorry, nothing we can do, nation state. Nation yep. state, sorry, doesn't matter that. Remember, remember, do you remember that the Sony CTO had mm-hmm. said on multiple occasions, it's, it's, it is more economical for us not to invest in our infrastructure and just pay for the hack when it happens. We don't worry about it. We'll just pay for the hack when it happens. We're deferring the risk. And then they get hacked. And, of course, oh, but it's not their fault. It was a nation state. It was Korea. Yep. It's not our fault. It was because of a movie.
1: And it definitely wasn't North Korea, no. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's like, you remember, uh, if you remember episode one or two of uh, TechSnap? It <laughs> yeah, was only, like, four and a half years ago. Don't worry about it. Um, when, when the Sony PlayStation Network got hacked, and we took a look. And it's like, well, they were running Apache from 2006. Yep. And uh Didn't version of OpenSSL it. from whenever. And all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, well, this was 2011.
0: So that's kind of horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the word cyber means never having to say you're sorry. And that is the truth. All right, Alan. Well, that brings us to the end of the TechSnap mm-hmm. program. Um, so join us next week, 1, uh, one o'clock Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Yeah, we do that over at jblive.tv or jblive.info if you want the audio-only streams. you want to give us some stories, give some content, make a roundup uh, submission, techsnap.reddit.com. Email us. Please go over to the contact page, choose TechSnap from the drop-down, and send us in your question. I'd love to get us I'd love to get it in here, and we'll get us answering it in a future episode of the TextNet program because we've got some double programs coming up. So we'd love to get your questions, so please send those in. Don't forget jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for the live times of the TextNet program. That way you can hang out in our live chat room, and you get more show too. It's not just you get to watch the same show, but you get to watch all the between Mm – when we go from segment to segment, we play music and The Bump. Well, that's usually like 10, 15 minutes on the live stream where we're just hanging out and chatting, maybe scratching, getting a, getting a beverage, yep. something like that. Or also uh, um, Chris screwing up the intro to the roundup three times in a row. <laughs> that happens too. Or playing Why Captain Kirk Climbs a Mountain. We also yes. sometimes do that. Those kinds of things happen on the live stream that you only get on the TechSnap live experience over at jblive.tv. And then also we try to get you to help pick a title, vote on the titles, and give us your feedback live. It's, it's a good experience. And uh, if, you're at, if you're at work, just sneak it in. Okay, I'm yep. just saying, just sneak well, it in. We won't anyway, tell. We if you've ever,
1: if you've ever looked at an episode of TechSnap and said that was a really lame title, it's your fault for not being in the
0: chat room and suggesting a better <laughs> title. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Don't forget, we've also got RSS feeds of the show, so you can get it weekly, and links to everything Alan talked about are in the show notes over at JupiterBroadcasting.com. All right, everyone, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.